At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We can institute a fast, and the fast can help reduce their inflammatory response, facilitate the removal of waste, and, and make it so they can breathe comfortably. And with a fast that we pursue to the point of, you know, for a longer period of time, you know, a few weeks, we can get it so the person never has asthma again for the rest of their life. So there we utilized fasting as a therapeutic tool. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 261. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, veggie lover, welcome to another episode in the fasting series. Now this series is intended to provide education about the potential health and longevity benefits of different forms of fasting, including time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting, and extended water only fasting. Please be aware that in this series, we will be discussing different forms of fasting and food restriction. And in some cases, there will be references to body size and weight. This material and these methods are not appropriate for children, pregnant people, or people with certain medical conditions. Please do not attempt these practices without medical supervision as it could be very dangerous. These concepts may also be triggering for people with disordered eating or eating disorders. So please practice discretion before listening to these episodes. Thank you and I hope that you enjoy this episode. Dr. Joel Furman, MD, is a board-certified family physician, seven-time New York Times best-selling author, and internationally recognized expert on nutrition and natural healing. He specializes in preventing and reversing disease through nutritional methods. Dr. Furman is the president of the Nutritional Research Foundation and on the faculty of Northern Arizona University Health Sciences Division. He coined the term nutritarian to describe a nutrient-dense eating style, designed to prevent cancer, slow aging, and extend lifespan. For over 30 years, Dr. Furman has shown that it is possible to achieve sustainable weight loss and reverse heart disease, diabetes, and many other illnesses using smart nutrition. In medical practice and through his books and television specials, he continues to bring this life-saving message to hundreds of thousands of people around the world key takeaways from this episode in the fasting series. Fasting is a powerful medical intervention. 
Everyone should practice some sort of time-restricted eating, especially finishing dinner early so that your body can repair as you sleep. Overeating, especially chronically overeating, raises your metabolism, which likely contributes to more rapid aging and decreased longevity. You never get hungry. You are probably chronically overeating. What we eat is even more important than fasting. Focus on optimizing diet and increasing nutrient intake before you implement fasting techniques. Fasting should not be used as a weight loss technique because it can trigger binge eating and food obsession. And we want to ensure adequate omega-3 intake as well as plant protein intake, especially as we age. Dr. Joel Furman, welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. It's such a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Today, I want to focus on fasting because it's something that I have been learning more about myself and experimenting with myself. And I would love to hear your personal story about how you first discovered fasting. You wrote a book called Fasting and Eating for Health. 28 years ago. So you've known about this for a while now, Dr. Furman. So can you tell us the story about 28 years ago? I'm not old enough to have done that. (laughs) Of course not. So yeah, tell us how you first came upon fasting and how it affected your life. Well, my father fasted first when he he read Dr. Herbert Shelton's works in the 1950s and 60s. He was, um, had problems with his back and kidneys and arthritic problems and he fasted, which helped him a lot. Um, I really didn't fast much in my youth until I was 20 years old. I was on the world figure skating team, and I had a heel injury, which kept me out of competition and not walking for a year. And I thought I would fast back then to try to absorb the growth of calcium in my heel because um, it wasn't getting better. Nowadays, we have these extracorporeal shockwave machines that we can put to absorb like tendon, calcified tendonitis and calcifications. And, you know, we have other ways of treating that than non-surgically. But in those days, I was left with thinking that fasting would help um, do that. And so I start, so in my exposure to fasting in my youth, through my study of natural hygiene and my father's um, reading Dr. Shelton's works, I was able to be in contact with lots of people who fasted and used and utilized fasting as a therapeutic modality to help them get well. And through my medical practice over the last 35 or 40 years, I've utilized fasting as a therapeutic tool when appropriate to help people, um, you know, put a little finishing touches on or bring them to the point of, of better health. For example, um, an asthmatic, a person who has asthma, we put them on a healthy diet, we clean them, and they still have, they try to stop their medications, and they still have too much inflammation in their lung, and the body utilizes inflammation to remove toxins from the body. And so we can talk about that more, but I'm saying that in the book Robbins and Cochrane that all medical students um, read, it's the patholo- you know, the basis of pathology, they explain and they teach us that the inflammatory response is closely intertwined with the process of repair, and inflammation serves to remove and wall off the injurious agent and sets into motion a series of events that tries to heal and reconstitute damaged tissue. So I'm saying the asthma attack itself is reparative uh, because from retention of metabolic waste in the body, and then we, we suppress the reparative processes by taking steroids to push the poisons back in so we can breathe, 
So when we start to lower their beta, we just get rid of their beta agonists first. And then we start to reduce the steroids appropriately. And at that point, if they're getting symptoms and they're not getting better, then we can institute a fast and the fast can help reduce their inflammatory response, facilitate the removal of waste, and, and make it so they can breathe comfortably. And with a fast that we pursue to the point of, you know, for a longer period of time, you know, a few weeks, we can get it so the person never has asthma again for the rest of their life. So there we utilized fasting as a therapeutic tool to, whereas just stopping the steroids at the end wouldn't have been enough to, have caught, to um, remove their symptomatology. Yeah, so... It's a tool in your toolbox that you're using along with nutrition changes, lifestyle changes. And what you're trying to say is that inflammation is a signal that the body is trying to heal something. There's something there that the body is trying to repair. So it's good to pay attention to it. And also we don't want to just use all these band-aids to try to cover it up because we're not actually getting to the root cause of healing that condition. Exactly. And that's really inherently one of the major factors wrong with medical care. It's that, let's say a person comes in with episodic headaches, and the doctor gives them medications for headaches to relieve the headache. And Escit, Wygane, Vanquish, Excedrin, Furanol, Furacet, Midrin, drugs whose active ingredients are barbiturates, narcotics, and caffeine which takes the headache itself, which is a repair, which is most often reparative and removal of waste products that then excite or annoy the meningeal membranes around the brain. But it could also be caused by imbalanced structural and musculoskeletal imbalances, muscle spasm. It's not, or, you know, eye problems, or there's other things that contribute to it. But, however, in most cases, the use of medications to suppress the headache leads to the development of chronic headache syndrome and worsens the headache over time so people require more care and get more severe headaches. If we dealt with the early onset of headaches by allowing it to resolve the inflammation by respecting the headache itself, you know, put cold on your head, you know, or, or do what you have to do, but eat really healthy, clean up your act, get massage for your neck, use the, you know, you get the, loosen up your muscles, look at your leg length discrepancies, fix the structural problems, fix the spasm, fix the toxicity, then headaches go away in almost in 99% of cases, instead of putting this person on drugs for the rest of their life and creating chronic headaches. So what I'm saying is suppressing the symptoms of inflammation is what the doc, what medical doctors have mostly do, which then keeps the person more toxic and more chronically sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent point. And I think a lot of people don't realize that because they've never thought about the alternative before. They've only just been treated with medications and that's their understanding of how you go about, you know, chronic conditions and disease processes. Before we go any further, in your book you do a really good job of differentiating what fasting is and what is not fasting because we have gone to a point where you hear all these things like a cleanse or like juice fasting or fruit fasting, things like that. So what is fasting and what is not fasting? Well, I think it's important that we use clear language to know what to describe what it is we're talking about. So um, water fasting, you know, is just with fasting with no calories coming in on only water. And that's the most extreme form of fasting, but also that it could be the most effective for a person looking to resolve an autoimmune condition like lupus or asthma or something and, appropriate, and use it appropriately as an appropriate tool. Um, and then there's juice fasting, which is really not fasting. It's just people on a juice diet 
which is more like a liquid diet, not like, I wouldn't really call that fasting. And then very, now we're using the terms intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. Those two factors are used more in modern time because there are um, benefits to, there's the main benefit of, and both, I'm not a real advocate of intermittent fasting where you cut your calories down to 500 calories or below one day, and then the next few days you eat more calories and you cut it back again, even though it can be effective as a weight loss tool or as a, you know, even though it has some value. I more emphasize this concept of time-restricted eating where people finish eating their calories for the day by six o'clock in the evening, the latest, so they have four hours of no food coming in before they go to sleep at night. Because we've learned in the last decade that the body heals and repairs and, and pursues more anti-aging and detoxification when we're sleeping at night and when we're not digesting food when we're sleeping at night. So, we, so sleeping becomes more longevity promoting if we can finish digesting for the day before we lie down to go to bed at night. So it's stacking the calories earlier in the day um, that some people call time-restricted eating, which is really just, or if they call it, fat, but it's really not fasting. And it's really just eating the way we should be eating. We should be eating when it's light out and not be eating when it's dark out, you know, and, and not be going to bed on a full stomach, you know. By the way, I always say to people, man lives on half of what he eats, and on the other half lives his doctor, which, which, which is kind of like a joke, but it's really not, because it's incredible that in America today and much of the modern Western world, people are eating approximately twice as many calories as humans need to thrive, double the amount. And people have looked it up and said, that's ridiculous. They can't be eating double the amount, but look it up. They're eating about some, um, in America, they're eating like 3,400 calories a day when the need for most people is between, let's say, 1,200 and 1,800. They're eating approximately double the amount what people should be eating. Yeah. It, it is incredible because what I've read is that if the body reacted as predicted, we should be even larger body size than we are. So what that means to me is because we have this overconsumption of calories, it really does indicate that our metabolism is in overdrive. Having to process all of these extra calories and figure out what to do with them, whether it's burning it off, metabolizing it, whatever it's having to do, it's having to work really hard all the time, which is taking energy and attention away from just baseline trying to prevent chronic disease or even heal some old injuries and old processes that are happening in our body because we're giving it too much work. We're taxing the system too much. It's kind of the way I understand it. I am so glad you brought that up because very few people understand that concept. And, and, it's, and it's astute to understand that concept that when you eat, you know, it's 3,500 calories is a pound of body fat. But when you eat enough, when you put on body fat, you're eating more calories than you need. Your body's trying to get rid of some of those calories and avoid putting it all on body fat. So it speeds up the metabolic rate. It raises thyroid production, thyroid hormone production. 
it raises your basal metabolic rate and your body temperature, and it raises the respiratory quotient of calories burned through breathing. And people think that, that raising their metabolism is favorable. It's aging you faster. It's burning your furnace higher. You're going to shorten your lifespan. You're paying a price at the end of your life with having burning out your stem cells and your telomeres, so you're aging at a faster rate. And they don't realize when you put 30 pounds on your body, you've eaten almost 60 pounds more calories than you needed, not 30 pounds, because the other calories raised your metabolic rate. Likewise... When you undershoot calories by a hair a little bit, your body resists losing weight when you, once you reach your ideal weight. And so your body will lower body temperature, lower thyroid function, lower metabolic rate, and age slower. The secret to living a long life, if we could say the maximum normal lifespan for, man, for, for humans is between 97 and 107 years old, the way you achieve that, or one of the only ways you can predictably achieve that is by eating a diet rich in nutrients without excess calories that are going to speed up your metabolism. So while the modern world thinks we want to have a faster metabolic rate so we can eat more food and not get fat, I'm teaching the opposite, that we want a moderately slower metabolic rate so we can eat a little less food and not get too thin. I surely want to maintain my muscle mass, but I don't want to have to eat a lot of food to do that. Yeah. Well, that's what I've seen. And, you know, it's funny because I go skiing with my buddies, you know, and they and we, we ski all day on hard on expert slopes, and their legs are tired, and they're coming home to eat these big, giant meals and shoving the calories in, and I'm just eating my regular 500-calorie dinner and, and skiing the next I don't have to eat, like, 3,000 calories to, get my, to, keep without, to keep my weight up. You know what I mean? It's like they've, they've revved up their metabolism by chronically overeating, and so, so many people, how can I say, have been acclimated to chronic overeating that when they don't, that the brain has, the, the dopamine receptors in the brain has sensitized to that, and they feel wasted or empty when they eat the normal amount of calories. So it's almost like an addictive withdrawal because they've acclimated to, an, to the overuse of calories, and they don't satisfy with an apple. They got to have something sweet like a candy bar or some ice cream or a cake, or, they gotta, or, or a bunch of dates. They can't just be satisfied. You know, they, they, they need something more calorically concentrated all the time because they've gotten their body acclimated to that. Yeah, neuroadaptation works in both ways. We can neuroadapt to having these, you know, hyper palatable, ultra processed foods, but then we deliberately make a choice to come off of that food and eat the whole natural foods. Thankfully, we can neuroadapt in the other direction th too. You know, thankfully, yes. <laughs> sometimes it takes a little bit of work, but we can do it. Uh, you know, you may know I have a retreat in San Diego where people who are food addicts come and spend a few months here. So we can get them to clean up their taste buds and be satisfied with the right amount of calories and learn how to instinctually eat. And they're eating as much food as they desire now, but they, much, they desire much less when they've gotten the right nutrients, gotten the fiber, re, you know, gotten their taste buds more sensitized. And that time away from the over, food overeating that allowed the body to reset itself. Yes, that's great. Okay, so you kind of mentioned a couple of different conditions that you use fasting for in your practice. I'd love to retouch on asthma because it does seem like there is quite a bit of literature out there in using fasting, water fasting for the treatment of asthma. And I think that that is one that my listeners would benefit hearing from because I think we traditionally think of asthma as something that comes from the outside rather than from the inside, right? So you're thinking of asthma or oh, like polluted air, or, you know, maybe you have like, you know, cockroaches in your house or too much um, dust in your house. That's what's causing the asthma. But if we are seeing that you can use nutrition changes and you can use water fasting to help alleviate 
your symptoms of asthma, then that means that it's something that's happening from the inside too. So can you talk a little bit more about the treatment of asthma and using water fasting for asthma? Absolutely. And don't forget, I don't start with water fasting. I start with dietary change. Yes. So first we get the yes. person eating an excellent diet. And that excellent diet may take a year before I decide to put them on a fast. So during that year, they're on this excellent diet, which I call a nutritarian diet, because I'm adjusting their their food intake, a high green vegetable intake, a lot of assortment of natural plants like beans and mushrooms and onions and berries and flax seeds. I'm trying to get their nutrients in the right level and getting them to get all the toxins out of their body by getting rid of the processed foods and all the um, excess amount of uric acid and acids from the too many animal products. So I'm getting this, this healthy diet. Now, over then, I'm also measuring the omega-3 index, making sure they don't have a pro-inflammatory omega-3, omega-6 ratio. That make, makes that, in other words, we make sure the omega-3 index is above 5.5, between 5.5 and 8. And that sometimes necessitates, most often necessitates a supplement with, omega, with a, like a vegan omega-3, um, DHA and EPA to make sure they're at anti-inflammatory range. And that takes a few months to get that there and to get their diet right. The next step is to have them on steroids alone without using long-acting beta agonists. Because long-acting beta agonists, even though they can stop the, they can relax the vasodilate and relax the blood, the, um, the biliary, not the biliary tree, the, the um, respiratory tree, they can relax the, the open up the bronchioles a little bit, make you breathe easier. They put, they do so and cause chronic inflammation. So they make asthma occur on a recurrent basis, just like taking the headache pills make headaches reoccur. The beta agonists used over time actually worsen asthma. And there's rescue inhalers that are short-acting beta agonists, but a person can still use that in an emergency. But there's the long-acting beta agonists that doctors use long-term on people, which we don't want people to use. We want to get them off that. So, we, so sometimes I may even up their, up their inhaled steroid dose so the point, to the point where I get them off the beta agonist completely in the short run. But in the long run, as the year progresses, I'm going to start to weaken as they're breathing well now on, a, on maybe a higher dose or the same dose they were on on the, on the on the um ste- on the inhaled steroid with a spacer or you know a, a, a draw inhaler so not putting the steroids into their mouth. So as we're doing that now, um, I might over the period of up months, if they're doing well, start to gradually lower their steroid dose because you can get the steroid inhalers in different dosaging, and I can put it to a gradually go to a lower dose and even have them use less puffs, keeping and seeing them slowly improving their asthma over a year. It takes a long time. I've had people with cat allergies and in hay fever after one year not get well, but after the second year of doing the diet, be able to not be exposed to cats and be overexposed to pollen and not react. You know, wow. So it really takes a long time to reset the immune system. So once we've gotten them to the point where they're doing well on, on less medication, and then we can discuss the fact of stopping medication completely. And we'll stop medication like every other day, or they'll skip a, couple, a dose here and there, and we'll see if they get back wheezing or not. And if they're doing well, then if they are, they're doing well, fine. And if they are getting back wheezing when they're stopping the medication, if I think it's appropriately where they've been on the diet and their body nutrients are good, then I will say, okay, let's stop the medication. And we know you're going to wheeze a little bit. We can always put you back on it if we need to. But let's start a water fast now because a water fast will suppress the immune response. It will, reactivity will go down. Your body will relax tissue. And you should be able to breathe easier, not have 
and, and have a period of time where you can finish cleaning out and getting rid of the, the remnants that are called excitation to the lung tissue. And that's when we sometimes, that's when I use the fast to help the person make a complete recovery from asthma. And I've had so many people, even adults, who said to me, you know, they couldn't take exercise classes. They had to wake up in the middle of the night to use inhalers. They had very severe asthma. With this, with this therapeutic protocol, which but taking our time, not rushing the fast, not rushing getting off the medications, but taking a couple of years to get the, a year or more to get them well, they were able to get rid of their asthma and have a healthy and have a life free of asthma in their future. Wow. Very, and that's, and when you're bringing that up, and that's really one of the um, I should say, a, a typical way where fasting can be utilized. One of the best ways to utilize fasting is with a condition like that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you went through that because it also points out that patience and persistence is needed in some of these conditions. So people really do have to be motivated to get well, to continue to make the right choices with their diet, to make some tweaks and you know hold out for the long run to get better over these conditions. And children get better much quicker, of course. And it's amazing when you start a child eating really healthfully. In most cases, their asthma just goes away and you don't even have to, they grow out of it. And you don't even have to fast them. Yeah. Do you check omega-3 index levels in children as well? Yes, I do. It's just a finger stick, you know, so I can supplement them appropriately, especially if they're, you know, if they're not eating fish. And the problem with eating fish for omega-3 is that there's so much dumping of waste products, you know, plastics into the... Um, Oceans and fish are largely polluted, and a little bit of pollution, the little bit of plastic particles, the microplastics, can be a, one of the contributors to asthma. So we, you know, it's one of the reasons why a woman today, with the same amount of calorie consumption, the same amount of exercise, is 30 pounds heavier than a woman who lived 40 years ago eating the same amount of calories, because we have more endocrine disruptors and more toxins and more pollution in the environment or in the water and where we're eating and commercial, whatever it is, plastics and food or, or um, eating more fast food, but the body becomes polluted and people don't rec understand that the body makes its own waste products like uric acid and urea and reactive oxygen species and lipofusion and it, you know, it builds up advanced glycation end products and it gets mixed in with toxins from the external world like... Um, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, for example, and, and, and microplastic particles. So we do get retention of waste in the body. It does contribute in the body. We, it does contribute to disease. And eating cleanly and carefully with, with a lot of plant-based nutrients and the utilization of fasting is the way we can get these toxins out of the body and enable the body to make a recovery. What are some of the other conditions that you commonly utilize fasting with? Well, the other common conditions would be things, things like can mix connective tissue disease, lupus, when there's not severe kidney involvement, and psoriasis, though, and, and rheumatoid arthritis. Those are conditions where I would utilize fasting the most. Um, they're all autoimmune conditions, even though asthma is not an autoimmune condition, because it's the same te technique we use with these conditions to get a person healthier, and either they're not needing medication, and then we can fast them earlier, or they're on immunosuppressive anti-immune, you know, anti immunosuppressive drugs, which we have to wean off over a long period of time. I don't recommend fasting when you're on these immunosuppressive drugs. So we're trying to get the person well so they don't need much drug anymore. And if they can get to that point where they're almost off the drug or off the drug, but still have moder very moderate to mild symptoms, then we can fast to clean up the, 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 sim the symptoms to allow them to make a recovery. It's funny, I can tell you a case of a man who was a butcher, 
and he came and ate the ate the right diet for only a month, and then fasted. I think he fasted for 15 days, got rid of his arthritis. It all went away, his shoulders, his hands. He was cured with just a month on the diet with a two-week fast. And then I, I didn't see this guy in my practice for like three years, just assuming he's well. Then he comes back three years later and his rheumatoid arthritis came back. And I said, and it was pretty severe, you know, in the same areas of the body. And I said, what happened? You know, did you still stay on the diet? He said, nah, I felt good for a couple of years in the diet. I felt so good I went back to eating meat and eating, my, eating poorly again. And now a year later of eating badly, it came back again. So this was earlier in my career. It must have been at least 20 years ago. So I did the same thing I did the first time, where I had him eat right for a month and fasted again, and it did not clear at this time. It did not. So he, because the, the, I don't know, maybe the it's second, it's a person losing weight and gaining it back again and losing weight and gaining it back again. It seems like the more the disease gets advanced. So I had to feed him on a healthy diet for a longer period of time and fast him a few times to get better this time. He had to like fast, stay on the diet for another few months and then do another fast three or four months later and that the fast cleared him. You know, so it wasn't as easy to go away the second time around for some reason, you know. Well, hopefully after that round of, you know, fasting, he decided that it was worth it to just stick with the diet. Hopefully he learned his lesson. He was a butcher, you know, so. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's rough right there. So you may know I've done episodes on minimalism. I really believe in doing the best that we can to decrease waste and increase efficiency and then just decrease the amount of stuff we have. And that's why one of my values in my medical practice is to be as paperless as possible. Now, it's impossible to be 100% paperless, but I think we're doing an excellent job here at Nourish Wellness. What I love is that our forms, we now have made all paperless, uh, whether it's a developmental form or a mental health form or some of the different uh, releases that parents have to sign, we are able to send that to them to their phone that they can access via a link. Or if they're already in the office, we can send it to an iPad and they can fill it out here in the office. It's better for the planet is so much more efficient for us. So just think about the way we used to do it before. So before we would have to print out the form, put it on a clipboard, give it to the family. They fill it out with a pen. We take it, we score it. So we have to do that by hand. Then we have to scan it in and then shred the paper. Just think about how much more time and effort that takes, how much wasted time that we have there that we could be answering patient phone calls, giving patients advice, doing other things, being there face-to-face -face with patients. So I am so happy that we have an electronic medical system, an EHR, TriMed, that allows us to stand by our value of being paperless and increasing our efficiency. Because when we increase our efficiency, we have more time to spend with families face-to-face, -face, even if it's just relaxed time that we're sitting there listening to them, supporting them, answering their questions. It's invaluable. It's invaluable. So I am just so happy that I found TriMed, that we're able to stand by these values that we have. They make it easy for us. They support us. It improves our efficiency and our quality. So if you're looking for a new EHR practice management system, then look to TriMed. You can find them at trimedtech.com, T-R-I-M-E-D-T-E-C-H.com. 
whether you are a solo practitioner or you're part of a larger practice, you really need to learn more about TriMed and the wonderful work that they're doing supporting healthcare providers and see if it works for you. So check them out, trimedtech.com. In your opinion, your experience, what is the longest a patient can safely fast on their own without medical supervision? Is this something that's advised or should they always have medical supervision for uh, water-only fasting? That's a tough question to answer because certainly we don't want people fasting on medications or have medical conditions that could exacerbate some the, the risks of fasting. And the main risk of fasting is becoming lightheaded and faint and falling down and hurting yourself in a fall. A person could smack their jaw on a toilet bowl in the middle of the night, or they could smack their head on the ground, or they could, so the main risk of fasting is falling. You know, so we want, so, but in any case, and that could happen even on a short fast. A person could fall on the three or fourth day of a fast. So that's why um, we're very cautious. And, and I think the instruction here is that if a person is water fasting on their own, which a person could probably safety do it if they're an experienced faster, and they know how the body reacts to fasting. They know how to take care. If they, and the main thing is if you start to feel lightheaded or weak, then you have to get down on the floor immediately and not resist and not stand up. You have to go right down to the ground so you don't fall down. You get down. But if, you're, you know, if you fast and you know you don't get lightheaded and you know how to do and you're careful, I'm sure it's okay to do it on your own. But just like giving birth to a baby, you know, and probably in you know, 95% of cases, people can give birth to a baby without much medical technology or medical assistance. But in some unusual conditions, without having the medical assistance there, you, there could be a problem. And so there, so like sometimes when I'm fasting people or I have fasted people with, let's say, ulcerative colitis, let's say, and they're, they become dehydrated very easily, but they really do better with bowel rest. And in recent years, I've been taking a lot of my ulcerative colitis and Crohn's patients and getting them on the, the health, the diet that helps them, but then having them fast two to three days every month, usually fasting on their own. But I don't fast the two or three days in a month by themselves the first time. The first time they're doing it with medical um, supervision, because even on the third or fourth day of a fast, the person could start vomiting, especially with ulcerative colitis when they get dehydrated, and the vomiting can't be relieved by taking an oral, oral fluids. They, they may need an intravenous fluids to stop the vomiting because they become so dehydrated when they fast. So there are some conditions where people don't make ketones or some conditions like ulcerative colitis where they, um, where they can come, where they're moderately dehydrated or come dehydrated very easily, where they could become dehydrated and need medical care to rehydrate them properly. You know, so they're trying to take water and they spit it up or they vomit it back up again. So there are some cases where over my years of practice where it was good that I had a medical degree and I could put an IV in when a person needed it when they were doing a fast, but that doesn't mean in 95% that's, that's a relatively rare thing that could happen. You know? But I have had a person fall down and you know, break something on a fast too, even under, even under medical supervision, you know, even telling them, to, well, I told you to be careful. I told you not to go stand up at the toilet in the middle of the night. I told you not to. You still have people that are going to fall and going to hurt themselves, and that's, that you have to be very careful about. Okay, good information, good to know. What does it mean whenever you have protein sparing during a water fast? It takes about 36 hours for a female, or 48 hours for a male, to go into the protein sparing phase of fasting. Our, body, our, our bodies are biologically designed to survive without food. 
It's like we don't, what if we were living 30,000 years ago? We had no food in a snowstorm. We wouldn't just die. The body can survive on no food for a long period of time, you know, even like almost a month. But the point here is that when you first, when your body, the brain is, is burning glucose for energy. And 80% of the calories utilized at rest are utilized by the brain, by its need for glucose. So after you've gone through the stores of glycogen, the glucose from the meal, which could be you know five to six hours or eight hours after you ate, then the, body, the brain still needs glucose. It can't function on ketones yet. So the body can break down muscle tissue because the body can make glucose from breaking down amino acids from muscle tissue, but it can't make glucose from breaking down fat. So does the body want to lose body muscle mass to fuel the brain's need for glucose? No, that's why we get hungry. We get hungry appropriately before we start breaking down muscle tissue. So true hunger becomes a precise computer directing us to the right amount of calories instinctually to maintain our lean body mass. If to have gained weight, you had to have eaten outside of the demands of true hunger. Because true hunger exists to protect your muscle and bone. It doesn't exist to put fat on you. If you did become overweight, you're recreational eating, you're eating because of toxic hunger, which is a withdrawal from a poor diet with shakiness and fatigue and headaches and stomach cramping. Or, but, but the real hunger felt in the throat right here, which is true hunger, is to protect lean body mass. So a person is, so then you're, you don't want to, then if you continue, calories continue not to come in for a couple of days or 36 hours for a woman, the body says, okay, we got to get some other um, fuel for the brain here because we're learning, burning up too much muscle. And the brain over, over that first day starts to be able to accept ketones as an alternative or, ener or alternative or energy fuel for the brain. And the body transitions, the brain develops the ability to utilize ketones for energy and then spares the utilization of glucose and sparing the utilization of glucose spares the breakdown of muscle tissue. So it's called protein sparing. Okay. That's important to understand because a lot of people um, auto assume that automatically when you start water fasting, you're just going to lose all your muscle mass right away. And that, you know, that's a, a big risk factor of fasting. What's the difference between fasting and starvation? Well, starvation would be something that wouldn't be good. It would be that when your reserves of nutrients and muscle and fat are exhausted and you continue to not eat, then you're going to destroy some vital tissue that could impede organ function and the, on, on the way to death. So we don't want people to fast so long that they put themselves at, at some degree of harm. It's bad enough you fast and lose weight and lose muscle and, lose, and then it takes you a while to build back that, that muscle tissue again. And don't forget, I, I'm not an, you know, an advocate of fat, people fasting till they're emaciated. If you want to utilize fasting as a lifespan enhancing tool, then let's, let's say my body weight right now is about, just for argument's sake, about 150 pounds, just for as a round number. I could fast, you know, of three or four or five days and drop my weight to 140 pounds and then work out with weights and get my weight back over the next three months back to 148 or 50 again and fast back to 140 and get my weight back to 150 again and fast back the next year or do another fast or I go next six months do another fast because I'm keeping my, I'm using, utilizing some fasting, but I'm keeping my body weight still in a healthy, favorable range. I'm not fasting myself down to 120 pounds and then getting it all the way back again and yo-yoing it up past 150, I'm keeping my weight in that favorable range between 140 and 150, even though I'm utilizing some fasting. I generally do not recommend fasting for people with food addiction and obesity. Because if you follow these people, because number one, they have to learn to eat right and stay with something long-term. 
anything they do temporarily isn't going to result in long-term weight loss. But when they're a food addict and haven't yet mastered staying on the right amount of calories and the right amount of foods long-term, the fast itself can trigger more emotional obsessions with food and make them more likely to binge after the fast. And even the people who lose weight, who use fasting and successfully lose weight from fasting or restore or get their blood pressure better or something, if you follow these people for a year or two after the fast, most of those people are at a heavier weight two years later than they were before the fast was. And it wasn't a good idea for them to fast. It would have been better if they took the time to learn how to eat this way through consistency and repetition and improving their taste muscle and changing their taste preferences and learning about them and, and doing the program like we do with, with, with permanent change in the way people eat, reserving fasting and using it more judiciously for people who are not food addicts or have medical conditions that require it. Yeah, great point. And yes, I, I love that because that really is the purpose of this series is to have people learn about the health benefits of fasting. And I think uh, fasting, or at least intermittent fasting, has gone mainstream mainly for weight control. But I think what you're saying is true in that it leads to this binge restrict cycle for a lot of people because they're, yes. they're, they're using the fast as their method of weight loss, but they haven't even tried to address what they're eating, which it sounds like even when you're working with people for their medical conditions, you're always starting with that dialing in the nutrition and dialing in the lifestyle habits before you're even considering putting them on a fast. Exactly. Exactly. And people who are trying to lose weight, if they don't improve the quality of what they're eating, and they can't, that's why people fail in weight loss. That's why doctors think you have to give people drugs or you have to do surgeries or lap bands because they don't understand that it's impossible people to cut back on calories and be, and be satisfied with less food if they're not getting their nutrients and fibers needs met. The body becomes a calorie consuming cravings like a calorie consuming monster. You can't do it. It's almost impossible to lose weight if you don't improve the quality of your diet. When you start eating big salads and vegetable bean soup and mushrooms and onions and berries and all the, when you start eating enough healthy food and bringing the nutrient levels up, then people eventually become satisfied with fewer calories and can comfortably stay on a diet because the level of toxicity goes down. And I'm saying it's the, the toxic load in the body that causes withdrawal to occur in the non-digestive state that lead, lets people feel fatigued and uncomfortable and they got to eat more calories to keep their energy up. And that desire to eat to keep their energy up goes away when they eat very healthfully. So I'm saying it's necessary to eat healthfully and to learn how to do, and that takes time for people to learn how to do it long-term so they feel good and they get, and they develop their taste preferences change and they're not feeling, and they're feeling satisfied on lower amount of calories. Yeah. I'd love to hear what you've learned or discovered about fasting in the last 28 years since you wrote your book. Have there been any uh, paradigm shifts or any new things that you feel have changed since you initially wrote the book? There's three or four things that have changed. Number one, we mentioned it, the fact that people get food obsessed after a fast. And if they are food obsessed and have a tendency towards addictive eating, then fasting could make that worse. And even intermittent fasting could lead to that binge eating cycle we're talking about. So it's not, so yes, it's being, that's the main thing we're talking, that we're, we're being more cautious of with fasting. The second thing is the importance of the omega-3 index, particularly in plant-based eaters, 
because my 35, 40 year experience as a doctor specializing in this field, taking care of um, vegan communities and elderly vegans, I found a high percentage of people developing later life dementia who are living a long time or Parkinson's disease, and the, the, which is related to dramatically deficient levels of the omega-3 index. So where most people advocating plant-based diets recognize the need for B12 and sometimes zinc and iodine, there's too much um, cavalier attitude towards the critical importance of maintaining an adequate omega-3 index. Because if you're going to live to be over 90, you're going to live to be 95 to 105, you want to live with your memory and mental faculties intact. And to do that takes some advanced planning because it's your omega-3 index through the middle ages of your life, through 50 to 70 or 80, that's going to determine whether you have full mental faculties when you're 90 or 95. You can't just try to fix it back then. So that's an, that's, um, an important critical aspect. And the other aspect has to do with modulating protein. And that is that we've seen uh, more recent data that more animal protein in the diet raises IGF-1 too high, which can permit cellular replication, allowing cancer cells to replicate or accelerate aging. And with certain ways of eating or the excessive use of fasting, or even on certain styles of eating plant-based diets, the protein levels could become too low and the IGF-1 could become too low, also suppressing immune system function. We wanna, so we wanna have adequate plant protein as, and less animal pro protein. And it's having a diet, especially as we age, with, with making it um, with as more adequate exposure to the richer plant sources of protein, meaning green vegetables, beans, and nuts and seeds, including soybeans. So those four categories of foods are the higher. So when you have a diet that's mostly fruit or mostly rice or mostly or not enough of the greens being or mostly, you know, or mostly potato, you can be, you, um, if the diet is not adequately designed, you can, it may be fine for a person in middle age, but as they get to be an elderly age, having a little more careful design to make sure they have adequate protein is important to, for, to maximize health and immune system function as they get past the age of 90. Yeah, that's good to know. And definitely, I feel like there's more literature and more research coming out about that. As we get older, we need a little bit more focus on the protein because it becomes harder for us to absorb the adequate amounts to maintain the muscle mass and the bone strength and all of that. Now, does that mean that we should be more mindful of looking at what percentage of protein we're getting from our diet or just make sure that we are including those types of foods? I think it's just making sure you are including those types of foods and also making sure your diet isn't largely fruit. If you eat too much fruit, then you can dilute the protein concentration of your diet by having a mostly fruit diet. My concern is these people who are healthy when they're young, who are eating too much fruit, as fruit becomes the main thing what they eat at every meal, and they're not eating enough salad, cooked green vegetables, quinoa, beans, nuts, sunflowers, you know, they're not eating enough of the variety of higher protein plant foods. And the second thing is, is that if a person is not thriving, if they're becoming too wasted, they're losing too much strength, they're becoming too frail or thin, it's something we should consider to look at. Measure their body proteins, measure their IGF-1, see if they need more, see if they need a supplement or something additional to what they're doing. We don't just, so 
I'm, I'm saying that a lot of the plant-based community is very cavalier with a one-size-fits-all approach. And I'm saying you, you have to see if a person's thriving and you have to do some investigation if they're not. Very good point. Okay, so I have one foot in the powerlifting community as well because I enjoy powerlifting. And of course, when it comes to powerlifting and bodybuilding, the mantra is more protein, the better. Can you have too much plant protein? Well, you'd have to overeat calories if you're getting too much protein, unless you were, how would you get too much plant protein? You can get like the too much of a concentrated protein from soy isolate. Soy protein isolate can raise IGF-1 like dairy products or whey protein can. Mm -hmm. And so that could be unfavorable for these bodybuilders trying to push their protein too high. They're probably better off if they want to moderately push their protein over and above what you can get from food. They're probably better off using a, a pea-based or a pumpkin-based, pea-pumpkin-based proteins um, with and hemp, pea protein and hemp-based protein. And what I tell people is that any recipe that calls for nuts and seeds, cashews, pecans, walnuts, whatever it is, take out half of those nuts and put in hemp seeds and spread half because that'll increase omega-3 and increase the protein content of your meal because um, hemp seeds are very high in protein. And soybeans don't neglect the fact that using cooked soybeans, dried beans in your diet, and also for bodybuilders or competitive athletes, we also use Mediterranean pine nuts, which, are, which can be 40% protein. They're expensive. I've often given jars of pine nuts to the you know, world-class athletes and Olympic athletes that I've advised. I'm giving them these for free. I'm, I'm, I'm giving them for free because I you know, feel good about helping them. So I'm giving them these jars of pine nuts because they're so rich in protein. They can travel with them to, you know, so they don't have to eat meat for protein or egg whites. They can get the pine nuts they're 40 percent protein yeah you have to you have to take out a second mortgage though for those pine nuts because they're really expensive exactly. <laughs> hey are you kind of curious about microgreens and including microgreens in your diet but you're not sure where to start and you're not sure how to do it I love my Hamama microgreen grower. It's so easy. It's so convenient. So this is how it works. Basically, they send you the kit and it has this little seed quilt, okay? And then you soak the seed quilt in the water. And in a few days, you see your tiny little baby sprouts growing. And a few days after that, you can start eating them. And it's so fun. And you can tell them that you're eating them. And they're really happy that you're eating them. And your body's really happy that you're eating them. But here's the best part because I've told y'all before, I'm lazy. So I don't wanna have to use any mental energy that I don't need to. And they send you seed quilts every month. So you don't run out, you can change what seed quilts you want to try. So here's some examples of some of the seed quilts they have. Hearty broccoli, refreshing cabbage, energizing kale, spicy daikon radish, super salad mix. You can even get wheatgrass, you can get culinary cilantro, or even hot wasabi mustard. So there's lots to choose from. They have different flavors. They're so cute and they're health promoting. So you can get a good dose of antioxidants and it's really beautiful. I also use them for garnish when I'm making soups and salads and different bowls. You can impress your guests. But like I said, it's going to be low 
energy cost on your part. And it's actually not that expensive either. The other thing that I use from Hamama is a green onion growing kit, which is really cool because it can decrease your food waste. So you buy the green onions and then the little part that has the root, the white part at the bottom, you stick it in these little holes and then you just put the water in there and it grows. And then you can keep eating the same green onions. You just go with your little scissors and you chop it off and you put it into your food. So if you want to give it a try, you've been curious about microgreens and different ways that you can grow your own food, check out Hamama. You can find it in my show notes for a link to get 15% off, or you can go to dryami.com forward slash shop so that you can find the link and get 15% off your first order. Happy growing. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you want to join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. And, you know, I've advised people who are professional athletes or Olympic athletes, and they, and the reason they usually follow this approach is not to get bigger and stronger or perform better. It doesn't make them get bigger and stronger or perform better. It just keeps them not getting sick so they can keep training and keep competing. It reduces the chance of getting a cold or an infection, but it also prolongs their career so they age slower. They're able to be a 35-year-old athlete, like an Olympic skier who I, was, I advised, um, Eric Schlappi, who was in four Olympic Games. You know, he still competed until he's 36 years old. Or people like Tom Brady or Venus Williams or people who are, who are still athletic. So we're talking about they're not going to be able to lift a heavy weight. But I've had um, some experience with working with people in, at NAU at, at Northern Arizona University through, my, um, through Dr. Jay Sutliff, who's the head of the nutrition department down there. And he uses my Andy scores and my nutrition, my nutritarian diet to advise a lot of athletes. And some of these big shot putters and javelin throwers, by just add, getting more vegetables and getting more nutrients in their diet, are getting less soreness and less and recovering faster from their workouts. So they actually are able to have perform better because they can train better. So even though we're not saying it's going to build more strength, it could make you so you have less inflammation in your tissue and you recover faster from your, from your exercise ex exertions. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely something to be said about feeling good because the better you feel, the better you can train, the more you can train, and that's going to give you gains. So I think cumulatively, yeah. when we're addressing a diet that's anti-inflammatory, it is going to help, you know? So I think that's all great. Definitely. And the other issue is, is that the shortest lifespan of any profession in North America are linebackers on football teams who eat to get unnaturally large. And being a power lifter, you know, 
be a power lifter and be for a male 160 pounds or for a female 130 pounds, but don't power lift yourself to be you to be unnaturally big through animal protein and, and even steroids or, or or weight protein and using you know they're using these concentrated protein drinks and weight gain drinks so they want to get super large. It's not good for their health for the for longevity. If they're, they're just you know it's not how big your muscles are going not going to be how long you're going to survive. So we got to be careful about that. Or at least people should at least be aware of it. Yeah, great point. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about what your own way of eating is? And it sounds like you probably integrate a little bit of time-restricted eating or at least keep, you know, the evening meal early. Can you tell us a little bit about your routine? Yes, that's exactly what I do. I try to make sure I don't eat dinner. I eat dinner at five o'clock and that by six o'clock I've done with calories for the night. And sometimes I even get hungry at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock at night. And I did too much exercise and I'm still hungry again. But I'll have some water and just go to bed and try not to eat it and try not to eat it and eat anything. So I'm consciously trying not and – and having hunger sometimes at bedtime or having hunger in your day, it gives you the feedback, good work. You didn't overeat. You know how people say you never get hungry. I'm on a great diet. I never get hungry. Well, if you're never getting hungry, you're probably chronically overeating because if you're not getting hungry, you probably could, could eat less food. You know, so we're, the whole point is eat as little as you can comfortably eat, not as much as you can get in there. And so, yes, I'm trying to moderately calorically restrict by not snacking after dinner or eating foods late at night. So when I finish dinner, close up the kitchen, put the food away, clean your teeth, water pick, whatever you do, floss, brush, because then that's, an, that's also an inducement not to go back and put more food in your mouth once you clean your teeth for the night. And then enjoy your night. Play games, go for a walk, watch television, watch movies, listen to music, do things you enjoy, and stay away from food. Yeah. Stay away from the restaurants. I think that brushing the teeth is very helpful, actually, for me, because it's like that automatic signal that I'm done eating, and your mouth feels good, and you don't want to mess it up. You know, you just want your mouth to feel good for the rest of the night before you go to bed. Exactly. You know, and that's where desserts um, are something I encourage. Because you eat a moderate amount of calories for dinner, and then you have a small dessert, like a frozen ice cream or some frozen cherries that are half defrosted, or you had a something, you know. But in, in any case, um, it marked the end of eating for the day. I had my vegetable-based meal with my walked vegetables with my Thai curry sauce, and I had the, you know, some black beans or whatever it is I was eating, and a, and mushrooms. Or whatever. I ate my meal, and then I had a little fruit dessert, a little. Um, or I made an agar-based dessert. You know what agar is? like makes like a jello-type dessert with a little agar and soy milk and vanilla and banana in there. I had a little jello. In a, and so we serve people, and it really tells you, okay, you had a little dessert. Now you're done for the night. You're finished. No more food. Not going to have any bread. Not going to have another, you know, just stay away from food for the night. What time in the day do you usually have your first meal? I'm not as concerned about that. I usually have it at eight o'clock because I'm not, you know, usually I get up at six and I have my first meal at eight. Usually I'm working in the garden between six and eight in the morning when it's still before the sun gets too hot. Um, or or in, it depends on what time of year it is. But yeah, I usually eat it around eight o'clock. So I'm usually eating eight, 12, and five, which, but sometimes, um, you know, I'm going to, sometimes I'm doing heavy exercise in the morning. You know, I can go into a gym early where I just go to the gym after a glass of water or maybe have an orange or some kind of almost nothing and then go to the gym and come back late and eat a later breakfast. And then if I'm eating a later breakfast, I wind up eating just the time I get to dinner, it's four o'clock. And so I ate an earlier dinner and I ate only two meals that day. 
instead of three meals because I ate a later breakfast. But then the next morning I wake up because I did so much exercise the day before and I ate an earlier dinner. I'm, I'm, I'm hungry when I wake up soon after I eat and maybe I'll eat seven o'clock in the morning that day and have three meals that day where I had two meals a day when I was exercising a lot. So I may have two meals one day and three meals the next. Depending on, and it's the day after the heavy exercise where I'm usually having the three meals. Yeah, so you're able to really tune into your body and listen to what it's telling you depending on your activity level and your lifestyle. It's great. Right, exactly. Okay, so I do have three rapid-fire questions to end, but before we finish with the rapid-fire questions, if you could please tell the listeners where they can reach you and connect with you and what products and services you offer and where they can find your books because you have so many. How many books do you have? I have 12 full-size books and a lot of different booklets on things, but I have 12 books. Seven books have become New York Times bestsellers. But some of my favorite books are not are the ones who have not become bestsellers, like Fast Food Genocide was not a bestseller, and Disease Proof Your Child was not a bestseller, and some of the ones that people like the most were, were um, not bestsellers. But my most, my most recent book, which the most scientific references in it, with the most updated references, is Eat for Life, because mm-hmm. I want to, you know, I don't want to, I want people to make sure they're having references from the from 2001 and 2002, and, you know, not references done from 10, 15 years ago. So I've been writing books for many years. And I think that's a, a great place for people to start with the latest book is Eat for Life. And they can buy the book on my website, drfurman.com, or on Amazon, like any other, like all of the books are available. And I have cookbooks. And on my website, I have a lot of recipes and I have products, food products. I even make salad dressings and soups and things to make the diet easier to do. And some supplements like the, like the DHA packed in glass that's refrigerated to make keep it fresh. So I have some supplements that people can take if they want to utilize mine. And I have some food products they could utilize with no oil, no salt, no sugar, no sweeteners like a, like a Thai curry sauce or an orange cashew dressing or a, you know, or, a, or a bean soup or something made with no salt or a ketchup made with no salt and sugar. Like I have some products that just to make it, um, to make this easier for people to adapt to the way of eating that I'm teaching them. As you know, I run classes and, uh, and, and detoxes and lectures. And I, so I, I do internet teaching and events over the internet for people to sign up for. Like I have a master class in autoimmune disease and cancer where people can download the information. Instead of just reading the book, they can know exactly what to do for various conditions. So I, and then I also have a, um, a part of the membership on my website where people can ask me questions directly and to communicate with me through a forum and then ask the doctor forum if they want to um, actually have my my opinion about what they're doing. Excellent. You're prolific. You have been doing so much work for so long and for people want to look up on YouTube as well. So many different lectures that are very helpful and informative, but everything is on drfurman.com. You can find all the books on amazon.com. Okay. You ready for the rapid fire questions? Sure. Whatever they are, I'm always right, ready. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. What's your favorite thing about fasting? Um, that, that it enables people to reverse disease. I, I love the, I'm, I became a doctor because I get excited about people getting well and then using those natural tools. So wonderful. What's your biggest fasting pet peeve? So like a myth, a misconception or a misuse of fasting? Um, when people are fasting because they're obese and they're fasting to lose weight. And what is one thing you want people to understand about fasting? that be extremely careful you don't hurt yourself that either get supervision or go to a fasting center some or a doctor knows what they're doing um 
or make sure you know a lot about it and know how to watch for any. And you're working with a doctor, you can get a, you can contact if you have a problem. In other words, and and being, I, even though my book was written, I don't know what thirty years ago, it still has some <laughs> twenty eight. Yeah. It still has some valuable information for a person considering a fast because it gives them warnings and things to what to watch for and what are the risks involved, so they know what to be concerned about to make fasting more safe, make it safe. Dr. Joel Furman, thank you so much as always for all your wisdom and knowledge and for being very generous with your time today. I thank you so much. I'm grateful for all your work and I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Thank you. You too. So excited about the work you're doing too. It's fantastic. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.